Hey, welcome back to the... Not welcome back, but if it's your first time listening. Hey, welcome to the Chavrusa Podcast. In today's episode, the season finale, we discuss the kosher barbecue scene, the only way to respond to anti-Semitism, and the answer to the question, why be Jewish? I'm Moshe Shomer, and this is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. We had missed mentioning on the podcast a really cool article that was printed in the Wall Street Journal last week about New Yorkers wanting kosher barbecue. Article written by Charles Passy talking about the opening of the new Izzy's joint in Manhattan's Upper West Side. So Izzy's barbecue has been a landmark in Brooklyn. Izzy's Brooklyn Smokehouse, which is an award-winning barbecue. It has taken top honors in Brisket King, which is an annual New York barbecue competition, typically featuring about 25 chef contestants. And what's great about Izzy's, Izzy Edelman, his name is, is that it's all kosher. Of course, no pork, uh, but also making sure that the animal is slaughtered and prepared in a kosher way. And you might think that this would deter someone uh, from go- going into the um, globe global smokehouse trend, but it has not. And not only that, it has started up many similar locations. 306 Barbecue Muncie, Southside Sandwich Shop, the New Jersey Wandering Q, which is based out of New York, that brings Smokehouse Fair through street trucks to synagogues and street festivals, breweries, amongst other places. That's run by Ari White, the Jewish guy who grew up in Texas. And yeah, pretty cool. So the article talks about, because of course, brisket is a really staple in Jewish cuisine and corned beef pastrami made from brisket. There are spices that you put on top. And while they can offer pork, they used pulled beef instead of pulled pork. And they come up with very creative ideas. So some Mexican dishes, Italian sausages, Polish style sausages. And it has been garnering major attention locally, if not nationally, according to the journal. One outtake I would say from the, the the article ends that it isn't just the kosher barbecue restaurants that are finding ways to connect the worlds of the smokehouse to that of Jewish culture and cuisine. And it quotes from an owner of a non-kosher establishment who says that even though it's not kosher, he tries to stay true to his Jewish roots by featuring such Jewish offerings such as knishes and cabbage soup as additions to his menu. And it ends, it says, the dishes speak to my soul. The owner said, dishes speak to my soul. It's a very interesting thing. It's a very interesting thing. Food has its way. Because it's not about the food, right? It's not about the knish. Nobody nobody could mistake Judaism for a knish. And if they do, it would be a mistake. <laughs> it's not about the knish, but... Food has a very powerful way 
of ensuring the memory, ensuring an experience. When you're having a conversation, it's over food, and then you eat that food later on. The scent, the taste, the experience brings you back in time. And you think about matzah, Passover. It's really the whole point of it. It's to bring you back in time into that experience of how, first of all, matzah was for you last year, the year before, the year before, back to your childhood with your grandparents, with your family, with your friends, the ideas being discussed, the feelings you felt back then, and everything that it conjures. And then not only in you as an individual, but in the collective memory of our people, that the matzah is tracing back to how it was not only decades ago, not only centuries ago, but how it was millennia ago, bringing you back all the way to the OG matzah in Egypt. And and there's something to it that the dishes speak to my soul, that this Jew realizes that even if it's a non-kosher establishment, and, and I don't think that he's taking the easy way of saying, uh, eh, you know, this is Judaism, knishes, gefilte fish, things like that. But it speaks to something much deeper. It speaks to something much deeper. Now, it could be even more powerful if it's actually the real thing and it's actually kosher, it's actually authentic. But it speaks to the to the desire deep down that, that exists in the Jewish people, that, that spark within us that want to find those ways to connect, that want to get there. And it ties very well to the topic we spoke yesterday in the podcast, The Vanishing Jew. Right now, the, the complex American identity and that ambivalence and where it comes from. And to uncover, to, to peel back some of the layers, to really get to that to that core and turn it from a past orientation to a future orientation. And just to add, I forgot to mention this, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I've been to uh, Izzy's Smokehouse. And it's incredible, the uh, world-class award-winning brisket, the sandwiches, the experience. And now they have a new location in the Upper West Side, so you can check it out there. Sam, if you're listening, go check it out uh, right near your hometown, home uh, location. Or if you're in Brooklyn, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, check it out on your way there and uh, save me some leftovers. Sigmund Freud describes a scene in his childhood. He says he was 10 or 12 years old and his father began to take him on walks to reveal to him his view upon the world in which we live in. And one time they're walking and his father tells him, when I was a young man, I went for a walk on a Saturday in the streets of Freiburg, where he was born. And I was well-dressed, I had a new cap on my head, and a Christian came up to me, and with a single blow, knocked off my cap into the mud, and shouted, Jew, get off the pavement. So Freud asked him, what did you do? How did you respond? He said, I went into the roadway and picked, and picked up my cap. In the book, The Ordeal of Civility, John Murray Cudahy describes this as the primal scene in the life of Freud. And he connects this to much of Freud's work, his ambivalent relationship with Jews and non-Jews, his theory of the deepest complex, and his strange assertion that Moses was not really a Jew, but an Egyptian. 
Now, there's this idea that there are moments in our lives that tilt the way we see things for the rest of the course of our lives. Right? Like this story in Freud, if this if this theory isn't reading too much into it, that the image of ourselves, whether we're proud or shameful, confident or embarrassed, could stem from a, a pivotal story like this. Rabbi Sachs points out that he in his own personal life had a similar story, just almost the opposite, where he, his family was on vacation in uh, southern England, and it was Shabbat, and they just left synagogue Shabbat morning, and they were going back to eat lunch. And behind them, after they left shul, somebody comes running out and says, your kid forgot to take off his yarmulke. Because at the time, that's what most people in that town did. They wore their yarmulke and shul, and then they took it off in the streets. They wanted to to be invisible, not to wear overt signs of Jewishness in public. And the guy in coming after them assumed that he had just the kid forgotten it, and you know was saving him from uh, embarrassment, just like if his uh, shoe was uh, shoelace was untied. And he meant it kindly, and Rizak says that his father, one of the rare times he got angry, turned around and said, "No child of mine will ever be ashamed." To be Jewish in public. They continued on their way. Ultimately what this leads to. The story. Let's say the contrast between Freud's primal story. And Rabbi Sachs as a kid. Is that ambivalence. Ambivalence is bad. It's bad for us. It's bad for those that relate to us. Those that relate to us. Because if a Jew respects Judaism. Then a non-Jew will respect him. Jews embarrassed by Judaism, and the non-Jew will be embarrassed by them. So it's bad for those who relate to us, and above all, it's bad for our children, for the next generation. And ambivalence has been part and parcel of, of Judaism now for the past two centuries. And maybe it's inevitable, given the double bind of emancipation and secular culture, and we spoke in yesterday's podcast, that transition from anti-Judaism to anti-Semitism. That Jews, embarrassed by the fact that they're Jews, resolve that tension by trying to keep the lowest possible profile. But the, the problem with ambivalence for our children is that it spells the end of an identity. You can't transmit that. You can't pass that on to children. And the children, the next generation, the college students today on campus, by and large, will seek, if they see ambivalence, they'll seek to escape from it. And in fact, that's what the whole generation is doing. They're leaving Judaism. That's why they're leaving. It's a tragedy, not only for, for ourselves, but for the whole world. Because as long as Jews are Jews, they contribute something unique to the intellectual, to the spiritual, to the moral life of society. So if Jews were no longer Jews, we'd be missing that voice. The world would be missing the voice. It would be an empty place in the conversation of mankind. It's only when we are who we, you are, who we are uniquely that we can contribute. But only we can give. And it's because we're different, because we're singular. We're in this time, but not altogether of this time. A part, but a part. And that's how, for so long, Jewish people have been a distinctive voice in the story of the spirit and the mind. Rabbi Sachs argues that there's been a terrible mistake, a terrible fallacy that has been born in the minds of Jewish people in recent memory. 
and it's wreaked havoc on Jewry. And the fallacy is that the Jews are the cause of anti-Semitism. Therefore, the thinking goes, if Jews change, anti-Semitism anti-Semitism will simply disappear. And it's false, because the Jews are the object of anti-Semitism. They're not the cause of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is something altogether different. It's not less fearful because of that. It's not less tragic, but it's different. Anti-Semitism exists even if in places that in countries that don't have a single Jew. They're still anti-Semites, people that never met a Jew. So we can fight anti-Semitism, but we can't cure it. Only anti-Semites could do that. And people have been trying. There's been great attempts at mitigating and fighting anti-Semitism, but it's still around. And it hasn't died, tragically. Anti-Semitism has traveled. It's now mostly in the form of anti-Zionism, which no less demonic than it predecessors previous forms so the only sane response to anti-semitism is to monitor it to fight it but never to allow it to affect the idea of who you are pride is always a healthier source than shame response than shame there was a rabbi that moved to Russia right after the fall of of communism. And for the first time in 70 years, Jews were able to practice Judaism openly. And he goes there to try to help with the revival of Jewish life. And he discovered that at the same time that Jews were more open to practice their Jewish life, anti-Semitism was more open to uh, be freely expressed. And one day a young woman comes to him in great distress and she says that her whole fact she hid, her whole life she hid the fact that she was a Jew and she stole it but for the first time she's walking on the streets and a neighbor mutters at her Jit Jew when she passes what does she do she's, she's in distress and the rabbi thinks and he says you know if you had not come with me to your stories my first time uh, really interacting with you I wouldn't have even known you were Jewish but when I walk in the street I'm walking in the street I'm wearing a yarmulke I have a long beard. I look like a rabbi. Yet, in all the months I've been here, no one has once come over to me and said, Jid, Jew. Why do you think that is? The woman thinks for a minute. And she says, and she was so, so, uh, so right on this. And she says, because they know that if they call me Jew, I'm going to take it as an insult. I'm going to be offended. But when they call you Jew, you take it as a compliment. So it means to be pr proud. And there's all the difference in the world between being proud and being arrogant. Arrogance is the belief that you're better than others. And yes, Jews have sometimes been guilty of this, and it's inexcusable to be arrogant. But to be proud that you're Jewish is simply knowing that you're different and being at ease with the fact. In the words of uh, William Shakespeare, never desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, but to be comfortable in your skin, to be proud of yourself. Whereas arrogance diminishes other people and therefore diminishes us. Pride values other people because we've learned to value ourselves. The chapter ends where Isaac tells a story. He's in Israel and Israeli comes running over to him and he says, you're from England, yeah? I was just in England, let me tell you. 
England is wonderful. The grass is so green. The buildings are so old. The people so polite. He smiles and he spreads out his arms and looks around. In Israel. And he says, This is ours. This is ours. That moment. That moment, Rabbi Sachs says, I knew what it is to be a Jew. There are other cultures, other civilizations, other peoples, other faiths. Each has contributed something unique to the total experience of mankind. But this is ours. This is our faith. This is our people. This is our heritage. And by loving them, you can learn to love humanity in its diversity. You can have unity and diversity. That paradox we've been struggling with in the Caruso podcast. So when you're at peace with yourself, you can be at peace with the world. This is ours. We come to the end of A Letter in the Scroll, a great journey we've been on in the podcast. The final chapter is Why I Am a Jew. Why I Am a Jew. Churchill said that some people like to Jews, some people don't, but no thoughtful person can deny the fact that they are beyond question the most formidable and most remarkable race, race which has ever appeared in the world. To be part of this most formidable and remarkable race. Einstein said, pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, an almost fanatical love of justice and the desire for personal independence, these are the features of the Jewish tradition which make me think my stars I belong to it. To share that sense of gratitude. For Judaism is a mature and adult faith. It doesn't call for a suspension of disbelief. Alice in the Wonderland, the queen describes uh, believing six impossible things before breakfast. It's not Judaism. No religion has ever more, more actively encouraged questions. Above all, within the yeshiva, the yeshiva experience, the citadel of traditional Jewish learning. Rabbi Dr. Abraham Torsky, who unfortunately passed away just a few weeks ago. He describes a moment in his youth when he was in the first entered yeshiva. How his rabbi, the rabbi, whatever somebody would say something, would say a, a good thought, a good idea. He would say, you're right, you're right. A hundred percent, a hundred percent right. Now I'm going to show you where you're wrong. So that's the pursuit of knowledge that Einstein was talking about. Pursuit of knowledge. And then despite all this, despite the formidable intellectual energies that Jews have devoted throughout the centuries to interpreting the will, to understanding the word of God and praying and arguing with him, but didn't try to fit him into finite categories of human thought, always with humility that there will always be much about him that eludes understanding. Second thing Einstein describes the fanatical love of justice that connects Abraham with Moses with the Jewish civil rights activists of more recent times and we've traced it back to that image of the palace in flames palace the world is perfect order in flames and what's going on in society in the world through free choice the tension between the world as it is and what it ought to be Rav Salvechik, or Joseph Salvechik, one of the great American Jews, uh, was once talking about his grandfather, Reb Chaim of Bres. Reb Chaim was known for his sheer genius and his 
analytical skills or pchaim. And he was once talking to his grandfather and he asked him, what's the function of a rabbi? What's the function of a rabbi? Without hesitation, he replied, pchaim abrisk. To redress the grievances of those who are abandoned and alone, to protect the dignity of the poor, and to save the oppressed from the hands of his oppressor. And the answer doesn't surprise us. If this would come from a professor describing the role of a rabbi, it would be surprising. But Rabbi Chaim understood that, even though he's the brightest mind in the in the yeshiva and the analytical mind, but he, he realized that Judaism's houses of study were very much attached to its social concern for the community as a whole. It's well known Rabbi Chaim would give away most of his salary to the poor people. He would leave his house unlocked so people could come in and, and have a place to stay, take his wood to burn their fires in their homes. He would tell his wife that if he wouldn't, if they wouldn't do that, if they wouldn't have free uh, free access to their wood, he wouldn't be able to light a fire and sit in warmth when he knew there were other people that poor people that would be cold. So there's a direct line between Reb Chaim and the fifty percent, over fifty percent of of Jews in California who, when asked what being Jewish meant to them, they replied social justice, three times the figure for any other factor, by the way. There's that direct connection, the the restless drive to perfect the world under the sovereignty of Hashem. It's a Jewish instinct that survives long after other practices might have been abandoned. And it stems, you see that fanatical pursuit of justice, the empathy, the sympathy. And the Jewish emphasis on the power of the individual, the dignity and the responsibility that the human individual has. That unlike Christianity, it's not a religion of salvation. We don't need to be saved. And unlike secular systems, all the way dating back from ancient Greece till today, does it see the individual as fundamentally alone in a sea of hostile or indifferent forces? No, the human individual the dignity, the responsibility, the call to action, the partner with God to create in the world. And Judaism expects great things of its of its members. Maybe that's why the impact has, has been so disproportionate to its numbers. A mere quarter of a percent of the population of the world and what has it has accomplished. Judaism, a people, a people that saw themselves as a kingdom of priests, could do no less. High expectations always give rise to high achievements. Rabbi Sachs says that he asked Paul Johnson, a Catholic writer, historian, what he most admired about Judaism. And he replied, Paul Johnson, no other faith or culture has managed so well the balance between individual and collective responsibility. My Hillel's famous statement, Mishnah Perkyavos, if I'm not for myself, who will be? And if I only am for myself, what am I? No other culture has been able to achieve this extraordinary difficult balance because you either slide into excessive individualism or oppressive collectivism. 
And the reason is, is because we're part of a story. The way Judaism was able to do this is because we never thought in, in disembodied categories as individual and collective. It wasn't a thing. We were a family. And the family grows into a community and it grows into a people and grows into humanity as a whole. You don't think in these categories, am I individual, am I collective? This is, it's part of my story. It's part of my identity. I'm both. I grow in, as an individual, I grow in my moral connectedness to other people. I, the, the idea of being connected in the Jewish concept of the home, of the school, of the congregation, of the shul, the sense of connecting of connection to people scattered throughout time and throughout space. So yes, we're definitely a people of strong individuals. You ever attend a, a meeting conference, you'll see strong opinions. Uh, you can attest to that. But even even so, no, every single Jew, no matter where they're holding, has that strong sense of responsibility to others. When you see a Jewish community under threat, you see Israel under threat, pulls at your heartstrings. So it's very clear that Judaism got it right about the big questions about God, about mankind, the universal and the particular, the individual and the society, education and the life of the mind, justice and compassion, human dignity and equality. Being part of, yet apart from the wider society which we are set. And yet, at the same time, you can't hide from the fact that something's wrong with Jewish life today. Something's wrong. You see it in, in wherever you look. Not only are young Jews disengaging from Judaism at unprecedented rates. There's grievous and unnecessary division that injures relationships between various different Jewish groups. Religious, secular, liberal, conservative, different strands within orthodoxy itself. And there's a rather inescapable feeling that... We somehow lost the script of the Jewish story. The Jewish story, that breathtaking attempt to build out of simple acts and ordinary lives, a fragment of heaven here on earth, a society for human dignity under the sovereignty of God, a home for the divine presence. Right, we're losing that script of the story. Never in the past 2,000 years have the stakes been so high. And the answer can't come down to the knish. It's not going to be right that story in the uh, Wall Street Journal today. Mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Right, it's not going to be the the nostalgia, constellation of fading memories, being a an ethnic group, a, a culture, because it could provide maybe the basis of an identity, but it's not going to last three, four generations. Ethnicity, tradition today on campuses carries no obligations. Culture doesn't command. Memory in of itself doesn't ask us that we commit ourselves to perpetuating what it is that we remember. It's why groups that have been built on these type of foundations inevitably have disappeared over time. Judaism was always so much larger than this. It was one of the noblest dreams that ever could have taken hold of the human imagination. And that we as humans are partners with God in this world. It's the courage to see the world as it is without the comfort of myth or the self-pity of despair. It's knowing that evil and cruelty and injustice are neither inevitable nor meaningless, but it's a call to us as a call to human responsibility, a call coming from the heart of existence itself. So Jewish identity can't be merely horizontal. It can't be untouched by that 
still small voice of eternity of destiny where vertical people were linked through covenant to, to the past and to the future and to heaven itself. And to be a Jew is to be part of that ongoing dialogue between heaven and earth that has persisted to keep building toward a society that honors the human person and our differences and our commonalities. And rarely have we ever needed it more. And above all, and really the central theme of the whole book letter in the scroll, is that Judaism isn't a theory, it's not a system, it's not a set of speculative propositions, it's not an ism. It's a call, it's a personal call that bears your name, our name. Unlike other great systems of thought and philosophies, right? it's not a call that's addressed to all of mankind. It's a summons, it's a summons to us. It's a summons that has been carried on through hundreds of generations, written in the history of the lives of our ancestors, confronting us now as our heritage and our responsibility. And it's, it's, a, it's a respond. It's a respond to Hashem's challenge and covenant. The covenant that and a challenge that takes time and centuries, millennia to overcome the conflicts and injustices of the human situation. And that, therefore, every generation has to hand over to the next that, that vision of humanity and moving towards the more gracious world. And the, the most eloquent words in the Torah spoken to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to the prophets. And Hashem calls out their name and says, Moshe, Avra, Yaakov. What's the response? The response was always, he named me, here I am. I'm here. I'm here. That's the call. That's Jewish history. The call to us. It's a call to your name for you to respond, he named me, here I am. I'm ready to continue this story. I'm ready to write my letter in the scroll. Rabbi Sass concludes the book with the answer to the question, why then? Am I a Jew? Why am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew because I believe that Judaism contains all there is of the human stories. Jews didn't write Shakespeare or Beethoven. You didn't give the world the beauty of the Japanese garden or the architecture of ancient Greece. You like these things. You admire the traditions that brought them forth. But this Judaism is ours. We're not a Jew because of anti-Semitism or to avoid giving Hitler a posthumous victory. What happens to me doesn't define who I am. We're people of faith, not of fate. Nor are we Jewish because we think Jews are better than others, more intelligent, more virtuous, more law-abiding, more creative, generous, successful. The difference lies not in Jews, but in Judaism. Not in what we are, but in what we are called to be. I'm a Jew because, being a child of my people, I've heard the call to add my chapter to its unfinished story. I'm on the journey, a connecting link between the generations, the dreams and hopes of my ancestors live on in me and I'm the guardian of their trust now and for the future. I'm a Jew because our ancestors were the first to see that the world is driven by a moral purpose. Their reality is not a ceaseless war of the elements to be worshipped as gods, nor history a battle in which might is right and power is to be appeased. 
the Jewish tradition shaped the moral civilization of the West, teaching for the first time that human life is sacred, that the individual may never be sacrificed for the mass, that rich and poor, great and small are all equal before God. I'm a Jew because I'm the moral heir of those who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and pledged themselves to live by these truths, becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a descendant of countless generations of ancestors who, though sorely tested and bitterly tied, maintained faithful to that covenant which they might so easily have defected. I'm a Jew because of Shabbat, the world's greatest religious institution, a time in which there is no manipulation of nature or our fellow human beings, in which we come together in freedom and equality to create every week an anticipation of the Messianic age. I'm a Jew because our nation, though at times it suffered the deepest poverty, never gave up on its commitment to helping the poor or rescuing Jews from other lands. Got to watch that movie on Netflix with the Ethiopian Jews. Forgot what it's called. What's it called? Uh, Operation Red Sea Diving Resort. Rescuing Jews from other lands. Fighting for justice for the oppressed. Did so without self-congratulation. Because it was a mitzvah. Because a Jew could do no less. I'm a Jew because I cherish the Torah. Knowing that God is to be found not in natural forces. But in moral meanings and words and texts, teachings. It's fault because Jews, though they lacked all else, never ceased to value education as a sacred task, endowing the individual with dignity and depth. I'm a Jew because of our people's passionate faith and freedom, holding that each of us is a moral agent, and that in this lies our human dignity, our unique aspect of human beings, because Judaism never left its ideals at lofty aspirations, but instead translated them into deeds that we call mitzvot in a way which we call halakha, and thus brought heaven down to earth. I'm proud simply to be a Jew. I'm proud to be part of a people. Those scarred and traumatized never lost their humor or their faith, their ability to laugh at troubles and still believe in the ultimate redemption who saw human history as a journey and never stopped traveling or searching. And proud to be part of an age in which my people, ravaged by the worst crime ever to be committed against the people, responded by reviving a land, recovering their sovereignty, rescuing threatened Jews throughout the world, rebuilding Jerusalem, proving themselves to be as courageous in the pursuit of peace as in defending themselves in war. I'm proud that our ancestors refused to be satisfied with premature consolations, and in answer to the question, has Mashiach come yet? They always answered, not yet. Proud to be Belonging to the people of Israel, whose name means one who wrestles with God and with man and prevails. For though we have loved humanity, we have never stopped wrestling with it, challenging the idols of every age. And though we've loved God with an everlasting love, we love Hashem, we never stop wrestling with Him nor He with us. So this then is our story. This is our gift. There's nothing quite like it. It changed the moral imagination of mankind and today it still challenges it. This is what I want to say to myself is what I want to say to my children and anyone listening to the podcast. To take it, to cherish it, to learn, to understand and love it. To carry it and it will carry you. And then you in turn will pass it on to your children. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed before, you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that. And listen to the other episodes. Please Reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts, connections, ideas, questions, critiques. My number is 347-893-4467. Chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels. 
Thank you. Have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness.